Well, you know, from, from the pharaohs of Egypt all the way to the present day, uh, entourages are nothing new, right? Uh, all celebrities, famous people, uh, travel with entourages. And an entourage is simply a, a group of people who kind of attach themselves uh, to a, a person of notoriety and, and follow them around. Uh, so the president travels with an entourage, and you know, up to 70 people can fit on Air Force One. They are part of his entourage. The Kardashians have an entourage, uh, as does uh, Justin Bieber. Uh, Kanye West, uh, even Beyonce travels with an entourage. In fact, this is Beyonce with her entourage shopping at Walmart. Can you believe that? I can't believe that either. I think something must have been staged. But there she is uh, with her entourage. Uh, the entourage usually consists of, you know, personal assistants and you know, stylists, press agents, security, uh, all of these things. And, and oftentimes, uh, the size of the entourage uh, kind of reflects how big the star is. And those in the entourage benefit as well from being uh, 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 near this person of celebrity. Uh, there's money, there's parties, there's connections, there's visibility, uh, there's plenty of other perks. And when I see a celebrity traveling with, a, with an entourage with their you know, fancy cars and clothes and jewelry and, and all the stuff they have, I'm like, what are you thinking? Do you not know that these people are just hanging around you, using you to get all the benefits that they can uh, by capitalizing off of your fame? Well, I'm sure they do know that, but uh, the benefits of having an entourage must outweigh the costs, and after all, Somebody has to style Beyonce's hair before she goes out to Walmart, right? So you have to have an entourage for that. Well, Jesus traveled with uh, a type of entourage too, but it was a different kind of entourage, right? They were different. Jesus told, uh, taught uh, and chose 12 disciples that he, he brought along with him, uh, trained them to carry on his message. And, and they didn't do hair and makeup, right? Jesus wasn't into that. Uh, Jesus was his own stylist, and uh, he had Mediterranean Sea style. Uh, he also uh, had this, uh, this group of 12, plus a larger group of followers, right? Many of whom were women. Uh, and they often provided resources and much needed finances uh, for the mission. Uh, but Jesus, as the leader of the entourage, wasn't like the entourage as you see today. Jesus was humble, right? Jesus did nothing for his own benefit. Uh, and, and his disciples, you know, in the early days, they may have thought that they were, you know, part of the inner circle of some rising star on their way to, to fame and celebrity. Uh, but Jesus didn't do things the way the disciples expected them to be done, did he? Uh, he told people not to tell anyone about his miracles. Uh, he would rather have been alone uh, rather than the center of attention uh, in the limelight. So what, what kind of celebrity is this, the disciples would have thought? Uh, who doesn't want the fame that comes along with the power and the charisma that Jesus obviously had? And in these early days of Jesus' ministry, uh, his disciples seem to have misunderstood uh, the mission. Now, some may have enjoyed this entourage mentality, right? Getting to travel around with, with a rising star was probably pretty cool. Uh, but the risk was, and there was great risk to these disciples, that, that they, would, they would start enjoying the fame uh, that came with the miracles uh, and, and riding that fame, but then missing, missing the whole point of Jesus' mission. Jesus didn't come for fame or for money or for celebrity or for power. Uh, we know why he came. We've reviewed uh, the reasons why Jesus came uh, in our last two Advent series, uh, several reasons why he came. But one of them was in Mark 10, 45. 
Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So from Mark 1, the very beginning of the gospel, all the way until Mark chapter 8, uh, we have Jesus doing things and the disciples trying to figure out who he is. Who is this person that we're following? And in Mark 8, uh, Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ. And it seems that by then, perhaps uh, he's figured it out to some degree. Uh, but they didn't know who he was in these early chapters. And they seem to be, you know, trying to capitalize on the fame uh, that Jesus had. Not necessarily with the wrong motives. I'm not saying that. But just that they were getting out ahead of what Jesus' plan was uh, for this mission. And when you think about it, it's hard to blame them, right? Uh, they had been taught that a Messiah is coming. John the Baptist came projecting and predicting this Messiah, and now here the Messiah is. They've been waiting their whole lives for him, and they're thinking this Messiah is the one who is going to finally overthrow Rome. He's going to uh, kick them out, restore the kingdom uh, to what it was uh, back in David's day. And so who wouldn't want to be uh, close to a king, right? If you could be in the king's inner circle, uh, you would be. And the crowds were gathering to see him. Word was getting out. Now, I don't know uh, how many of you are watching the Chosen series, but I am finding this series uh, quite interesting, actually. I like how it's being done. Uh, I think they're doing a very good job of portraying uh, the disciples' excitement on the one hand and, you know, almost confusion and, and uh, uh, being mystified, uh, on the other hand, about who Jesus is. Uh, they're very excited about the mission, but they're, they're still not quite getting uh, what is going on. And so they, they love seeing the miracles and, and seeing uh, the healings. But when Jesus is not around, you see them like gathered in a circle, like a board of directors kind of, you know, planning out next steps. So what they're going to do to grow the mission as if the mission depended on them, as if they were in control of it, as if it's their responsibility. And I think it's just a fundamental misunderstanding uh, of, of who Jesus is, uh, why he came, and who is in control of the mission. And so Jesus needed to correct these guys, to get, to get them uh, back on board with, with, with what his mission is and not what their misperceptions of it may have been. So what I, what I want us to start to see this week as we start to, to move deeper into Mark's gospel is that uh, the gospel is good news, right? The gospel is good news. Jesus uh, came. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. Uh, so that we could be forgiven and so that we could have eternal life. That's the best news there is. But we also have to recognize that the gospel is confrontational. The gospel is confrontational. It, it meets us where we are and it confronts us uh, with whatever sin is in our lives. It corrects us. It changes us if it's doing its work. And so a, a true disciple needs to understand that uh, we, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know what his mission is, and we need to know what our role is in his mission, right? Not our mission. We, we have a place in his mission. He doesn't have a place in ours. And so a true disciple is not seeking his own fame and glory uh, or wealth or celebrity. If we're following Christ for those reasons, we are going to be sorely disappointed uh, because a true disciple seeks to serve, right? That is the point of being a disciple. Uh, and a true disciple doesn't seek to benefit personally uh, by being part of Jesus' entourage. But, but for us, we want to just be a vessel through whom uh, the blessings of Jesus flow out to others. That's our role as disciples. We receive blessings, they flow through us out to other people. And as we're going to see today, uh, the proper responses to Jesus are service and obedience. Uh, 
And the only one who gets this right in our passage today is Peter's mother-in-law. So let's start with her. Peter's mother-in-law, her healing. Uh, this is uh, verses 29 to 31. <clears throat> and immediately after they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and they immediately spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served them. So immediately after Jesus was in the synagogue uh, doing what he did there, casting out demons, they brought him to the house of Simon, who uh, Jesus renamed Peter, and Andrew. Apparently, uh, Peter and his wife uh, shared a house with Andrew. Uh, we don't know if Peter's mother-in-law lived there or not, or maybe she was just visiting, but she was here uh, in the house at this time. Now, this is an excavation of uh, Peter's house. Uh, not happen there. Uh, that's what Peter's house looked like in the 1980s. Uh, they excavated this, they dug it out, and, and you can see what it looked like then. And then after that, they built a church over it, and that is what is there now. So you have this big church on pillars. Peter's house is still underneath that. The church is raised up over uh, the pillar, uh, over, the, uh, over Peter's house, the ruins of which are still uh, underneath it. Uh, and if you're traveling to Israel with us, you will see that uh, firsthand. You will walk up those stairs and enter that church, and that will be exciting. Uh, so that's what the site looks like uh, in Capernaum. Now, we see from this passage that Peter was married, right? Uh, and, and that's an interesting thing. In fact, perhaps several of the disciples were married, as we'll see in just a second. But the fact that he was married is an early indication that uh, ministry is sacrificial, Ministry is sacrificial. Uh, most likely, Peter and his wife spent significant time apart uh, during the years when Jesus uh, was doing his ministry on earth. Uh, later on, I think they traveled together, uh, but during those early years, they were probably apart a lot of the time. Later on, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, uh, he said, uh, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? So we see that several of them were married. Cephas is Peter, and this is referencing Peter's wife. <clears throat> now, biblically, we don't know a lot about Peter's wife, uh, but Clement of Alexandria uh, wrote that Peter's wife was martyred before Peter was. And so this is what Clement of Alexandria wrote about Peter and his wife. We are told that when blessed Peter saw his wife led away to death, he was glad that her call had come and that she was returning home and spoke to her in the most encouraging and comforting tones, addressing her by name, my dear, remember the Lord. Such was the marriage of the blessed and their consummate feeling toward their dearest. Isn't that something? to watch your wife led away to crucifixion before you are. And these are the tender words that you speak to her. Uh, remember the Lord, my dear, remember the Lord. And Peter's uh, crucifixion would be soon after. Well, <clears throat> if you have been blessed uh, as Peter was, and ha as I have been uh, with a wife who is a, a faithful disciple, well, uh, you experience the highs and lows of ministry together, and, and Peter and his wife experienced the highs and lows of ministry for some 30-plus years uh, before they were martyred for their faith. And when we think about it uh, and, and you know, read a quote like that from Peter, it's just amazing to think about his growth from, from the man who denied Christ three times uh, to be able to write something like this or, or say something like this to his wife on the way uh, to her crucifixion and just before his own. 
All right, uh, back to uh, Peter's mother-in-law. When Jesus arrived at the house, they, they told Jesus that his mother-in-law, uh, that, that Peter's mother-in-law was, was lying in bed. She's sick with, with burning fever is what she had. And Jesus simply takes her by the hand and raises her up, raises her up. Uh, the Greek word for raise up is the word agairo. And it's the same word that you see used throughout uh, the Bible when Jesus raises other people who are sick, uh, when he raises other people who are dead, and in fact, the same word that's used to talk about Jesus' own resurrection. So uh, Jesus' raising of his mother-in-law foreshadows the healings, the resurrections that he's going to do, and even his own resurrection, which will come in about three years' time. Now, this is the first time in Mark that he is going to exercise, that Jesus is going to exercise authority over an illness. And it's, it's worth noting that he does this for a woman, right? Because women in that day were less in society, in, in that society. So Jesus is healing her, shows that he's concerned with all people. He's concerned with the lower of society. And as we progress through the gospel, even today, we're going to see that he's concerned with the outcasts too. Jesus is concerned with everyone. Jesus loves everyone. There is no one who is less in Jesus's eyes. And as soon as Peter's mother-in-law gets, uh, is raised by Jesus, her response is exemplary. Uh, as soon as Jesus raised her, she began to serve them. Now, it may be that in that culture, that was her role, that she was supposed to get up and serve them. Uh, but, but I think that she also served Jesus out of a heart of gratitude and the wisdom of someone perhaps a little bit older who, who got Jesus's mission, who knew what he was all about uh, before anyone else seemed to get what Jesus was all about. <clears throat> I also want to point out here that that often in Mark, women are the heroes of his gospel. We'll notice that as we go along. Uh, Mark chapter 5, we read about the woman with the hemorrhage. Mark chapter 7, we read about the Syrophoenician woman's faith. Uh, we read about uh, the, the women of faith throughout uh, the, this gospel. And Mark often refers to the disciples as, you know, bumbling and, and clueless and slow to catch on. But the women seem to get it more than the men do. Uh, and I want us to remember that that information comes from Peter, uh, who has, you know, later in life become humble enough to say, yes, it's the women uh, who, were, who were really uh, the, the, the pillars of faith and we were, were slow to catch on. Uh, so the women are often true examples of what discipleship looks like. And Peter's mother-in-law is the first example of that. Immediately, she served. So Jesus' mission and the mission of any true disciple is to serve. So staying on mission with Jesus, that's the title of our sermon today, staying on mission with Jesus means that we have to have a heart of service. Staying on mission with Jesus means having a heart of service. All right, let's see what Jesus does next. He's going to go out and he's going to heal the crowds at sunset. That's verses 32 to 34. Now, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Well, as soon as the Sabbath was over, Mark reiterates, as soon as the sun had set, so now the Sabbath is truly over, now the whole town comes to Peter's door. Now, they can't come during the Sabbath, right? Because you can't walk very far. You're not allowed to carry your sick during the Sabbath. But as soon as the Sabbath was over, the whole town shows up at the door looking for healing. So this new 
ministry was catching fire. People were coming from all over the place. And, and Jesus, uh, in these three verses, uh, does various things. Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about them, but there are various exorcisms and healings in these three verses that take place that Mark doesn't describe in detail, but it sure seems that Jesus had a very busy day uh, after sundown on that day. One by one, they lined up and Jesus healed many, uh, which is a Hebrew figure of speech, which means he healed them all. So he healed all who came to them. And again, Jesus refused to allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And so once again, we seem to have uh, Jesus, uh, uh, or Mark, I'm sorry, contrasting the demons who know who Jesus is and the disciples who are very slow to catch on with who Jesus is. And so these demons know who he is. That doesn't save them though, does it? And this is a great reminder for us that, that knowing who Jesus is doesn't save us at all. Uh, we need to put our faith in Jesus. We need to trust that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and that uh, salvation is through faith in him. Uh, it's not just knowing him. It's placing our trust in him for salvation. And when we do that, then we're saved. So we have these miscellaneous healings that happen. Uh, Jesus' fame continues to grow, and now he's going to leave uh, Capernaum and do a little mini tour of Galilee. And this is verses 35 through 39. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and prayed there for a time. Simon and his companions eagerly searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go someplace else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. And he went into their synagogues, preaching throughout Galilee and casting out demons. So before the sun had come up, remember Jesus had a late night last night healing all who came, and then before the sun comes up, Jesus is out uh, alone in a secluded place uh, praying to his father, which he frequently did, praying with his, uh, to his father uh, in the early mornings, in the late nights, whenever he could get uh, some time away. And the disciples didn't understand. When they wake up, they rub the sleep out of their eyes and they're like, where's Jesus? Jesus, he got to be here. He got a lot of whole people here looking, waiting for you. And so from their tone, it seems like they're perplexed. It seems like they're confused excuse me, confused, like they're upset. And, and I can imagine them saying, uh, what are you doing out here? The ministry is exploding. Uh, we need you back home where the people are all lined up. We got to take advantage of this. We got to strike while the iron's hot. Uh, and so uh, Jesus's desire to go to the other towns surely confused them. And by saying he wants to go to the other towns, he's saying, look, uh, my main ministry isn't here. I'm not here just to you know, cure physical ailments. I'm here to cure spiritual death. I need to go to the other towns. All the people need to hear this good news, not just Capernaum, but everywhere. And I'm sure the disciples were flabbergasted. You have all these people here seeking you, and you're going to leave them, and you're going to go somewhere else? Who does ministry like that? Uh, you know, if you and I were starting a business here on Buckingham Road, say, and we opened up on the first day, and we had customers filing in, and the cash register never stopped ringing all day, we wouldn't close shop and, and move to another location in Plano or something, right? We'd stay right there. Maybe we'd put another room on so we could have additional inventory. Uh, we would load it up so we could fit more customers in the building. 
And so uh, that's why the disciples didn't get it. They didn't know what Jesus was about at this point, and it's because they don't understand his mission. His mission was to preach the gospel, to save souls, and his miraculous healings were out of compassion and love and to authenticate that he was the Messiah that he claimed to be. But the healing wasn't the main thing, right? The message was the main thing. And so when he came to other towns, he most likely preached the same message that he preached when he first came to Capernaum. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So to keep the disciples on mission meant that Jesus had to teach the disciples to prioritize the spiritual kingdom of God and the salvation of souls, right? Jesus had to teach them, you have to stay on my mission, and my mission is spiritual. Uh, I'm, I'm preaching the kingdom of God. I'm here uh, doing physical healings, but that's only so that I can get people to the spiritual kingdom of God. And so staying on mission with Jesus means prioritizing the spiritual kingdom of God over the physical. But obviously, Jesus cared about the physical needs too. And that's what we see in this next uh, little passage as we come to the cleansing of a leper. This is verses 40 to 45. And a man with leprosy came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling down and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean and moved with compassion. Jesus reached out with his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away and said to him, see to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Well, leprosy was a terrible, terrible disease in ancient Israel. Uh, leprosy included a variety of, of skin, uh, skin issues, diseases, ranging from psoriasis to ringworm to, to true leprosy, which is a, a really debilitating disease that disfigures people. It's like flesh rotting right off your bones. And it's very painful too, but it's not just physical pain. It's spiritual pain. It's emotional pain because uh, you were a social outcast. You couldn't commune with the group because you are physically unclean. And so you have uh, physical, mental, social, religious anguish. And when you think about it, this leper should not have been anywhere near Jesus in his condition. He was unclean. He should not have been there. He should have been out someplace away uh, from the people. Uh, but he boldly approached Jesus and he humbly kneeled. And what a statement of faith when he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And that's something. Now, here's something that I know I struggle with from time to time, and maybe you do too. I know, 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 I know without any shadow of a doubt that Jesus can cure any physical ailment of mine. Uh, he can cure any disease that I have. He can resolve any situation that I find myself in. He can fix any conflict that I find myself in. It's not a question of ability at all, right? It's a question of his will. 
It's a question of what will bring him the greatest glory. Uh, that is how he answers prayer. Uh, what's going to bring me the most good? What's going to bring him the most glory? And so that's where uh, I have to trust. And if you find yourself in this situation, you have to trust as well. God's sovereign will uh, in working out uh, these difficulties in our lives. We have to trust that his will is good and that his plan is perfect. And if he doesn't heal or cure or resolve some situation, it's not because he can't uh, and it's not because he doesn't care. It's because his plan is better. And sometimes it's better for us uh, to go through the thing rather than around it because that will bring us greater growth spiritually and will bring him greater glory. And so oftentimes, uh, that's why uh, we have to go through certain suffering. And I have to remind myself of this all the time when God doesn't answer my prayers the way I want, when I want, exactly how I prayed them. You know, I can say, God, come on, this is what I need. And God says, well, I think you, you think that's what you need, but I know what you really need. Uh, and that is why God answers like he does. And so uh, this leper knew. He knew, knew, knew. Uh, that Jesus could make him clean. So along comes this leper. Uh, Jesus encounters this leper. And, and uh, the earliest Greek manuscripts uh, have this word splachna uh, for the word that is moved with compassion. That's the word. Uh, and splachna means uh, a, a pained feeling, uh, empathy, and on top of the empathy, the desire to make it better. So this is a deep word of, of compassion and empathy and, and of action as well. Uh, so Jesus had this desire to remove it. Now, a couple of later Greek manuscripts have a different word, not splachna, but a word that means angry or indignant. So if you have the NIV with you, uh, your version says Jesus was indignant when he saw this. And so uh, the sense of that word is that Jesus was angry uh, at the sin of the world, which is the reason for the leprosy to begin with, right? Because sin and death entered into the world, so did illness. And uh, all the way back to Adam, this is why uh, this man has leprosy. Uh, so there is a, a, a textual issue to say, uh, you know, whether the word is splachna or the word that means indignant. Uh, but I think both are true. Jesus was moved with compassion to heal this man and at the same time still indignant at the sin of the world. Both things can be true. And so uh, Jesus was moved to heal this man and, and, and dismayed at the world's sin. Uh, Luke, uh, if we looked at his gospel, says this man was full of leprosy full of leprosy. Isn't that an interesting term? This was not, uh, you know, I've had leprosy for a week. This was advanced stage leprosy, advanced stage leprosy. And I was going to show you pictures of what this would look like, but I thought decorum uh, would probably prevent me doing that. I probably oughtn't do that. Uh, but you can picture it in your mind. Uh, the rotting flesh, the boils, the crooked bones, the disfigured face, uh, this man's appearance, this man's smell would have been revolting. And Jesus was willing. Shockingly, he reaches out and he touches this man. That, that would never happen in ancient Israel. That would never happen. To touch a leper uh, made you unclean. These people were, they were outcasts. You would never do that. Anyone there would have been stunned. Just, I mean, picture it like, uh, imagine in the early days uh, of COVID, if we went into a COVID ward intentionally and, and laid our hands on somebody, it's like you're asking to get the disease, right? You, you would never do that, but Jesus did that. Now, I just, I just think that that is really something because touching a leper would have made Jesus unclean, right, by Jewish law. 
If you touch a leper, you become unclean. Uh, if he were not God, right? Because uncleanliness uh, gets transmitted from one person to another. Cleanliness does not get transmitted from one person to another. So if a clean person touches an unclean person, he becomes unclean. It's not the other way around where a clean person touches an unclean person and that unclean person becomes clean. That doesn't happen unless you're Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one who can transmit cleanliness. And as soon as Jesus touched him, the leprosy was gone and he looked just like you and he looked just like me. Uh, isn't that amazing? And it's a picture of our salvation. Jesus cleanses us from our sin when we put our faith in him. He removes our uncleanness and he gives us his cleanness. This leper had no hope outside of Jesus. And for us, neither do we. Outside of Jesus, we have no hope. We must believe to be cleansed. Now, this healing happened outside of Capernaum. So the word is spreading as Jesus moves from town to town. And a recurring theme that we see in the Gospel of Mark is this theme that Jesus commanded those uh, who he healed and the witnesses to keep silent about them. How's that up? I missed a slide. Uh, Jesus commanded uh, those who he uh, healed to keep silent about them. And so he tells the demons to be quiet in the two exorcisms that we see in Mark chapter 1. He also told the leper to keep the miracles to himself. So we would expect Jesus to want to publicize his miracles, to gain greater followers, right? So why would he try to silence them? Well, there are a couple of potential reasons. And, and first, he may have been concerned that people would have misunderstood his mission. Uh, you know, first century Jews expected this Messiah to be a military Messiah, a political figure. And so this was someone who was going to come and overthrow Rome. And, and Jesus didn't come as a political revolutionary against the Roman Empire. He came as a spiritual Messiah to overthrow Satan's kingdom, not Rome's kingdom. And so if Rome saw him as a political threat early on, it could have put him and his missionaries, his disciples, his followers uh, in danger before the time when he was ready for that. And secondly, Jesus may have wanted to avoid, just uh, uh, avoid drawing unnecessary or unwanted attention to himself uh, prematurely because miracles draw crowds, right? And we're seeing that early in Mark. Uh, so Jesus wanted to progressively reveal himself and who he was on his own timetable through what he taught and through the miracles that he did. He wanted to control the narrative and silencing the others uh, was the best way. And perhaps he wanted to be seen not only as a miracle worker, uh, he wanted people to believe in him, uh, not just the works that he did. Uh, so he's, he's got various reasons, I think. And maybe this one is the reason for, for the silence of this particular leper in this situation. Another possible reason is, is to command the leper silence is that maybe Jesus wanted the priests to declare him clean before they knew how he had been made clean. And that would be because if they pronounce this man clean, how could they then reject the one who made him clean? So maybe that's why, in this particular instance, he asked this leper to be quiet. So for, for this reason and perhaps others, uh, Jesus told the man not to say anything to, to anyone, but to show himself to the priests as a testimony to them. Now, to say that to a man means that you need to go to Jerusalem. You need to go to Jerusalem. And he lives in Galilee. He's 70 miles. That's a four or five day walk from Jerusalem. Why do I say that? 
Well, because to be declared clean of leprosy, according to Leviticus 14, means that you have to offer sacrifices, and you're only allowed to offer sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests, it's in Jerusalem. Leviticus 14 says, on the day that you present yourself to the priests, they will inspect you, and if you look good, if you look clean, they will declare you clean. On that day, you sacrifice two doves, uh, uh, the first day of your, of your cleanliness. Then on the seventh day, after being declared clean, you have to undergo various cleansing rituals. And on the eighth day, you have to offer uh, a couple of lambs as further sacrifices. And so he has to go to Jerusalem to do this. And so that was a big hardship, apparently, to this man. Uh, and we don't know if he did it. I'll get to that in a second. But after completing these rituals, if he did these things, the priests would have declared him clean. And this was a big deal. You know, people don't get cured of leprosy every day. This is an incurable disease. So the news about Jesus and what he did uh, would spread further as a result of this man speaking like he did. Now, as I said, we don't know if this man actually went to Jerusalem uh, to do this. Uh, Mark doesn't say. But what we do know is that he did not obey Jesus' command to keep quiet, did he? Uh, he told anybody he could uh, and anybody who would listen, uh, look, I had leprosy yesterday and today, look at me, I am clean. And so, uh, understandably, he was excited and he may have wanted to give Jesus the glory, but he proclaimed it to such an extent uh, that Jesus couldn't even go into the towns anymore. Uh, and I'm not trying to be too hard on this guy. I mean, I cannot imagine what it would be like, you know, to be leprous, uh, to have your, 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 your fingers, you know, falling off or whatever his condition was at the time. And then the next day, uh, to be clean, to have your life back from the pain and despair and isolation and misery of leprosy. But his disobedience meant that Jesus' ministry was hindered from what he had planned for it to be. Uh, he, he couldn't even enter a city anymore. He had to minister in the unpopular air, unpopulated areas. Now, obviously, Jesus knew this was going to happen, and I'm not trying to take his omniscience out of this, but the man didn't obey. Uh, he didn't do what Jesus told him to do, and he stayed out in the unpopulated areas. Now, I say that that hindered Jesus' ministry. He couldn't go into the cities, but that didn't stop the people from coming out to him, right? The people were coming from everywhere. So what have we seen in this passage? Mark is focusing really on the responses to the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, her response to what Jesus did was service. As she got up as a wholly committed disciple and she served. Now, Peter... And the others said, everyone is looking for you. Let's get busy. Come on. Don't be out here in the desert wastelands. We got to get to work, right? They misunderstood what his mission was. And the leper's disobedience caused some hardship to Jesus's mission. He probably thought there was no harm in telling everybody what had happened and giving Jesus the glory uh, for what Jesus had done, uh, but it did obstruct his ministry somewhat. So staying on mission with Jesus means obeying Jesus. It means serving Jesus. It means following his lead. Even if our hearts mean well and we think, you know, this will be great for Jesus if I do what he didn't say, no, we don't do that. We obey Jesus. Obedience to his plan is always best. All right, so let's wrap up with a few applications. And the first one is, 
you've seen is stay on mission with Jesus. You know, Jesus came to extend God's kingdom on earth, not necessarily to relieve temporal human suffering. Uh, we will suffer physically. We will suffer emotionally. Jesus promised it. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Not all of our needs will be met. We will not always be healed. Aren't you glad you came this morning? You won't always be healed. You won't always be cured. You won't always be saved from trouble. But we don't follow Jesus for material benefits. Uh, we are following Jesus as a testimony. Sometimes the things we go through are a testimony to others about how great Jesus is. And that helps advance God's kingdom in a way that healing us or keeping us out of trouble uh, might not have done. We're not an entourage. We, we don't follow Jesus for what we can get from him. We follow Jesus because of who he is. So staying on mission with Jesus means all these things. It means being a servant is the highest calling. Being a servant is the highest calling. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so Peter's mother-in-law is the example in this passage. If we're going to be like Jesus, we need to have servants' hearts and attitudes and look for opportunities to serve. So we are all busy. We all have limited time. But this week, see if you can go out of your way just one time to serve someone in some unexpected way, either in the church or outside the church, just serve. Say, I am your humble servant, Jesus. How can I serve? Look for opportunities to serve someone. And lastly, uh, simply obey Jesus. Uh, Peter and his companions thought they knew better than Jesus, didn't they? Uh, they interrupted his prayer because there were people waiting to be healed. They thought that they had this all figured out. Uh, and so the leper thought he knew better. He told everybody what happened, uh, thinking that might bring greater glory to Jesus, even though Jesus told him to be quiet. So a humble servant uh, obeys Jesus, trusting that his way is best, even when we don't understand, uh, even when we think that what we're going to do will bring him greater glory. We obey and we serve like Peter's mother-in-law. And how many times have we gotten ourselves in trouble in life because we got out ahead of Jesus or we did something that was disobedient to what he taught? Uh, so we, we have to be obedient to Jesus. The, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says, uh, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding, right? So do what God says. Do what Jesus says. Fear of the Lord includes trusting him, serving him, obeying him, and glorifying him, and knowing that his way is best. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the examples that you give us in the Bible of uh, the proper way to respond, and, and uh, the perhaps improper is too hard a, a harsh a word, Lord, but the, uh, just, just to help us get on board with, with what the proper response is, uh, Lord, that we would obey you completely. Lord, as we go through this gospel and we continue to uh, watch you reveal yourself uh, to uh, the various people through healings, uh, through exorcisms, through teachings, Lord, uh, and through the confrontations, Lord, that Jesus will have with uh, his disciples, uh, with, his, with the Pharisees, and with other opponents, Lord. Uh, we pray that this gospel will confront us where we are, Lord, that it will show us where we need to grow, where we need to change, and where we need to be more obedient, Lord. Uh, we pray that, that this gospel will shape us, Lord, uh, even even further, Lord, help us uh, to grow in our faith and, and become greater disciples for you, Lord, uh, spreading the word, uh, being obedient to your will, and advancing your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.